Hello again, everybody. It's Dan Sixsmith, and welcome back to another episode of Sales is King. And I know you're going to love our episode today. Last week, when I was in San Francisco, I had the pleasure of sitting down with the CMO of NAMIQ, Michelle Killebrew. And NAMIQ is a very exciting and interesting startup that is in the Internet of Things space, and it is a very exciting Wi-Fi connected sous vide device for the smart kitchen in the consumer Internet of Things space. And Michelle and I had a great conversation where we learned more about this Samsung-backed startup, what they're doing to grow, how they're competing in this very exciting space. And then we also had an opportunity to talk about the changing role of both marketing and sales. And Michelle has a very diverse background. She was at IBM for a number of years and led their social business. She's been CMO at a number of other organizations. And she also does quite a bit of speaking, including a very exciting TEDx talk that she did a few years back that you can check out on YouTube. So let's get into my conversation with Michelle Killebrew. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Sales is King. It's Dan Sixsmith, and I'm happy to be with my friend, Michelle Killebrew, who is the CMO of NamaQ, which is an exciting new cooking device in the consumer IoT space, and happy to say welcome to Michelle. Thank you, Dan. Welcome to our San Francisco office. I hope you're enjoying our lovely weather. Um, we do all of our manufacturing here in San Francisco, so great to have a U.S. manufactured product. And what's really exciting is this is our third generation device, um, really on the heels of our success so far, that has launched a brand new cooking trend around sous vide. So I'll give you the quick founder story. Absolutely, it's let's a, hear it. It's We're a lovely excited. story. Yes. Um, so the founder, Lisa Fetterman, actually was working in six uh, or Michelin star restaurants in New York City. And she was saving up for this big piece of equipment that they have in the back of all of your favorite restaurants that makes your steak come out perfectly. <laughs> it was really large, takes up, uh, you know, say half a table and several thousand dollars. And then when she was on a first date, with wow. a gentleman, uh, Abe Fetterman, her now husband. They actually, she told him about this dream of hers and he said, well, we can make one because he's a PhD plasma physicist from Princeton. Gosh. So on their first date, they went out and went and bought some of these, uh, some parts and they assembled their first device. Uh, when they did this, uh, they started making it for their friends and then published an Oprah and Maker, Maker Kit which wow. actually got them to the White House. There's their uh, Honored Maker Award oh from Obama. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they noticed that people were spending six, seven hours of their own time and six and seven hundred thousand or six and seven hundred dollars in parts to mm -hmm. assemble this thing. So there's a demand there. Mm -hmm. So why not make a company? Yeah. So in 2012, Amazing. they they launched their first uh, Kickstarter to create this device. They got $675,000 in investment in 30 days, one of the most amazing Kickstarters God. in that category. Wow. And then in 2015, they launched the first connected device with a smartphone app. The device connects to Wi-Fi um, and had the second most successful um, 
Kickstarter campaign in in the cooking category. So $875,000 for their second device. Wow. So by 2015, 2016, they had 1.3 million raised through Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And the exciting thing about sous vide as a cooking method is it's precise temperature control. And with a connected device, you can actually send that recipe straight to the device from your smartphone with the app. Wow. And share your recipes socially across the globe. So a lot of fun so cool. and innovation into the, into the kitchen. And um, we've just launched our third generation product, which adds RFID tracking with a food delivery program. So now we've got hardware, software, and goods. Fantastic. That creates an entire ecosystem around a cooking method that with Lisa's sort of invention in this space, bringing sous vide into the home, is now growing uh, in terms of a consumer adoption faster than adoption of the internet, faster than the adoption of the cell phone, and in fact, faster than the adoption of the microwave in its heyday in the 1970s. So wow. um, if you haven't heard of sous vide yet, you will hear of it soon. And um, I, I certainly welcome your investigation into Namaku and sous vide. Wow, that's an incredible story. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, so tell me, this is a little bit of a different venture for you. What kind of attracted you to, to, to the company and the space? Well, there's, a, you know, again, a lot of growth. I think for me, it's a wonderful opportunity to take my background in technology and see how right. it's changing our daily lives as a consumer. So we all, or at least, you know, in a B2B world, we've heard about IoT and right. digital transformation and all of these different big buzzwords, big buzzwords right. that are impacting um, companies, right? right? But it's it's been really fascinating for me to take sort of a look under the covers and see how those changes are actually coming to impact our daily life. So with IoT, for instance, for this consumer um, cooking device, Samsung invested in us in 2016, which was how they were able to bring me on board. But if you think about the possibility of the connected home, so right now with the Samsung Family Hub 2.0, Namaku's app is actually pre-installed in all of the smart hub family or the family hub smart fridges that Samsung mm -hmm. is producing. Wow. So you can actually shop for recipes, have mm -hmm. an understanding of what's in your fridge, and then send that recipe from your fridge door to the Namaku device. So that's one aspect of how you know your connected kitchen is going to help make cooking that much easier for you. Uh, meal planning, figuring out well what do I have on hand that I can make and turn into you know a delicious meal with relatively little effort. And then I think that the future is really endless. So with our food program, there's an RFID chip on each of the meals that we produce, and you just tap that to the device, drop it in the water bath, and it's ready in 30 minutes. So right now what we're doing is we're tracking your inventory for you, so we call it a smart subscription. Mm -hmm. So you're not being force-fed on a calendar cadence food that may not meet your schedule. I think with a lot of the food delivery companies, if it's you're getting a delivery on Tuesday, but then you've got a business meeting, you have to go out of town, or your kid's soccer game goes into extra innings, and you don't have time to actually prepare that meal, you then have a an expensive um, expensive box of food that's then perishing in your fridge, and or you have you know your next shipment coming, so you start to feel sort of guilted pressure. Ours is mm -hmm. actually based on your consumption, so if you are 
a frequent user, maybe you use us every weeknight because it's convenient and tasty, then we will, when you get down to a certain inventory, we know that and we will ask if you want to reorder that, that same order as the last time. You can go in and change your menu items or pause or cancel. And then um, if you're using it just sort of as a, um, a backup plan, for instance, and you like to prepare a healthy meal, but sometimes, you know, your timing doesn't work out, well, we're a great opportunity or, you know, option to fulfill that need. And so you'll only get reorders based on, based on your usage. So that's based on the, the RFID today. Mm -hmm. That data that can be housed in the RFID is, is not limitless, but it's, you know, multi-billion, a lot of terabytes of data that sure. then can be stored in the cloud with that, um, with that locker. And then, so we're sending the RFID data up to the cloud to determine mm -hmm. the precise cooking temperature for however much and what you're preparing so that it's already in 30 minutes. But think through then to the future where you can actually then on that tap of the RFID chip, send that data to your health tracker. And now you've got sort of what your calorie intake for the day was. Or think through potentially with a senior use case, the independence and mobility. Sure. So with sous vide, you're actually not cooking over an open flame. You don't have the possibility of um, overcooking your food. Right. So you know, for a senior audience, Definitely. you can tap the food and then potentially send that data as a passive alert to adult children, say, hey, you know, my, my senior parent is eating on a regular basis, which is a concern for seniors. Definitely. Or send that health data over to their healthcare professional to understand what their caloric intake and, you know, how much sodium or things along those lines that they're taking. So for me, again, long-winded sort of um, answer to your question is the convergence of all of these major tech trends and how they then converge with our daily life that make this Correct. really exciting. That's tremendous. Yeah. What a great opportunity. So talk a little bit about your role. You're the CMO here. How mm -hmm. is Talk about how you approach marketing for this company versus maybe how you've done it with some of the larger companies and, and how your role is evolving and how the marketing role is evolving, really. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, core for me as a marketer is really just being customer centric. And in order to be customer centric, you have to understand your customer. So starting with some level of data or insight and, you know, depending on the size of the company, obviously we are a startup, but, you know, just being able to leverage the data that's at your disposal. So that may be early customers, having in interviews, doing survey research, instead of going down the hall and saying to your insights team, hey, can you give me you know, the market data on XYZ? But it really does start with that customer centricity and understanding your, your, um, understanding your customer. And then, of course, sort of segmenting that insight and understanding into compelling value propositions that are going to speak to that particular audience and um, putting those into market. Obviously, right now I'm focused on growth, and that's both retail with our legacy device and really scaling our uh, the distribution of our subscription food delivery program. Um, and I think that you know, at, as a startup, you really just have to focus. So what what are the priorities, and then execute against those that are going to move the needle most, and appreciate that you're not going to be able to do everything even if you see True. that there are multiple you know avenues of opportunity it's focusing on the single avenue that's going to be uh, deliver the most results so that you can scale into those others at the appropriate time excellent 
So before we get into some of our other questions, tell everyone how they could find this exceptionally exciting product. Like, which are the, how are the ways that they could kind of find you? Certainly. Um, well, you can always visit our website at namiku.com. That's N-O-M-I-K-U.com. And then at the top there, there's a link to our food program. Currently, we are shipping in all of California. We do plan to scale nationally at some point uh, next year. So keep your eye out for that. And you can certainly, you know, start to investigate sous vide cooking on, on your own. It's a, it's a wonderful way to be able to, again, control um, control the temperature of your food and quite honestly it's so easy you literally put your food in the bag you drop it in so the water incredible. and walk away it sounds like a daunting scary <laughs> cooking method and for somebody who you know like myself who was a busy executive that didn't have right. time to really cook it sounded like a little bit daunting and then you sort of you do it and you realize it's that easy and it really right. is it's that easy right. it's remarkable great. and it's per perfectly cooked. yeah it's really incredible to think about that. But I mean, it's so appealing to the whole business world today with, you know, both, folk, you know, married couples working and running around and yeah. kids and everything else. So it's, it's amazing. And it sounds like it's going to be a tremendous uh, success here. Absolutely. So very excited about that. So let me get your opinion on a few things because sure. um, on this podcast, we've been talking about a lot. Obviously, we focus on sales mm -hmm. um, and the role of sales and how it's evolving. We also talk about marketing, which is your um, expertise. So there was an interesting, when we have this debate going on with, with a lot of the, the uh, listeners, um, Forrester came out um, initially in 2015, wow. and they said that uh, the, the B2B salesperson is, is going to be an endangered species for the most part. Um, and they projected 1 million uh, jobs would be lost in B2B sales. And the reason for that is kind of the tremendous... Um, increase of buyer uh, strength that they can do a lot of research online that there's a lot of automation today for them to go in and kind of just go ahead and buy directly um, and what have you so that's been kind of a, a big thing that we've been debating and then in 2017 they came back and said um, well what we meant was um, it was more of the kind of order taking jobs not necessarily the um, you know the kind of higher value type uh, you know solutions. Um, so I wanted to get your take. What do you, what do you think about that? Um, and, and, and where do you think that's kind of heading as far as B2B selling goes? Yeah, interesting. So just for your, your listeners, um, a little bit of context. So I worked for IBM for a number of years, joined through an acquisition, and I'm actually an advisor for a marketing analytics company or a company that helps marketers prove their business impact uh -huh. um, through time-based correlations, which is fascinating. It's called Proof Analytics. And this is something that I've certainly been tracking from the marketing side mm -hmm. quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, the, the role of marketing has changed, it has changed significantly. There's certainly a proliferation of marketing automation skills and tools out there, um, and it becomes it becomes a lot to juggle. I do agree with Forrester's probably correction on their initial statement. Mm -hmm. Customer experience and relationship building is is not going to go away. I right. think that it will right. be augmented by some of these marketing or sales automation tools that can help um, with kind of that order taking or if somebody is investigating a product or solution on your website, 
starting to engage with that person with the right information to help them wrap their head around your offering and perhaps move them down the funnel, um, there's certainly, you know, that, that opportunity. I think it behooves all of us to understand how, how that works. Um, I think that as cons customers, when you put yourself then right. in sort of the software, the B2B buyer spot, right. Right. you're seeking information, you need it quickly, you're trying to suss out, you know, what your options are in a given space, who's the competitive set that I should even be looking at? To then sort right. of figure out, okay, how to compare those apples to oranges, and, and you do want some amount of self-service. I forget that there was a, there was a stat. This was years ago now that, uh, by the time your buyer reaches out to you, um, they've done, you know, they've done certain level of assessment in right. order to evaluate. Right, they're like sixty something percent yeah. through the process. Exactly. Um, yeah, and that's okay, and but. That doesn't mean that they're done, no. right? So, so what we've been saying is, so when now when sales engages, yeah. the stakes are higher. They are. Um, you've got to be ready. Yep. Um, and you can't just regurgitate what's on the website. You have to have some sort of, um, you know, commercial insight, something that you know that the buyer will kind of understand that hey, you know, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's a subject matter expert. Yep. Um, because there are a lot of choices out there. So that's that's kind of what our take has been. It's also, an it's also an opportunity to differentiate. So, you know, right. it's an opportunity to differentiate around there is a service element of my, you know, both the sales process and then post-customer acquisition, you're going to be able to pick up the phone and, and reach a human being versus this permanent self-service model where I've now purchased the software, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, and then I'm kind of on my own and I have to read all of right. the documentation and there's nobody right. that answers the phone. They put you in a queue and you're in a FAQ help desk, a knowledge base somewhere. Right. You're just like, right. I just need a human being. Right. So it's right. that opportunity to start differentiating on customer experience through the sales process and help really provide that value to your prospect as they are, you know, trying to make, trying to make that decision. Yeah, yeah, and it and it dovetails with another stat that came out. CEB said that there was a, a large percentage of buyers felt like after they pulled the trigger were nervous that they weren't sure they even made the right choice. Right, so it's like you know they get all the way through the process, they they elect to go with somebody, and now they're having like second thoughts. So I, I agree a hundred percent. You know that customer experience where the salespeople can help kind of shepherd them through, you know, get them into the delivery team or, or wherever it is, and then keep that going. And now we see a lot of, um, one of the things we're working on at Alinean is this kind of realized value, right? So everyone's been going out saying, you know, here's why you should buy our solution. Now all these SaaS providers are coming back and saying, hey, we got to do a better job of renewals. Because um, what we're doing is we're just showing up 12 months later and saying, hey guys, you know, time for renewal. Um, so now we've got to show them the money again. You know, yeah. here's what we said you were going to get, and here's what you actually got. Absolutely. You know, so all of that stuff is really interesting. Was that old premise of you know? Remember before we were SaaS, and you'd actually buy and install hardware, shelfware, right? Well, mm -hmm. the stakes were less high because you'd already invested a huge lump sum in that that shelfware. The seller has gotten their commission, and they're on to the next thing. Right. But with SaaS, you're absolutely right. right. Twelve months later. There's that, you know, you need to have proven that value. Your customer has to have it integrated. It has to, mm -hmm. they have to have, you know, it sort of 
not only integrated into their other systems, but integrated into their daily process and their team so that it's adding value. So onboarding becomes critically important. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that even I, I've seen recently that companies are starting to do sort of that onboarding process, not even as not even as sort of a proof of concept, but sort of as part of pre-sales. Mm-hmm. Right, so that mm-hmm. they're embedding for that success before they've actually even signed the contract to help make sure that it's a part of mm-hmm. yes. that. Um, that it's just a, a long-term relationship, and it doesn't become sort of that shelfware, or the customer from a SaaS perspective doesn't churn. Yes, almost immediately. Yeah, it's a huge issue. I think we're seeing a, a lot of with our clients this whole, you know, rates of renewals or. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly it's, you think about it, it's the lowest hanging fruit that's there, right? Yeah. But it's still a challenge. And, you know, like you said, the salespeople are kind of on to the next kill. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's a big issue. Um, the other interesting thing that we just kind of were kicking around this week is um, the rise of virtual selling versus in-person. And there was a stat by um, InsideSales.com, of course, somewhat self-serving. You yes. You know, take it with for where it's come, that um, virtual sales meetings have increased by 89% um, over the last three years. So sellers today are selling virtually 45% of the time versus 23% of the time. So what that's starting to spur are these conversations around, hey, here's another reason why the expensive outside salespeople can be cut. And we can go with more of our lesser expensive inside folks that are, you know, used to being on the phone and, and doing all that kind of good stuff. So I, I recoil at that because I just feel like it's very short-sighted, number one. Um, number two is the inside people are typically not trained to close necessarily, right? They're kind of trained to nurture and, and move along. So I wanted to get your take on that. What's your feeling on virtual versus in-person and is this going to spell any more doom for outside people? Oh, that's so funny. I think, A, consider the source, as you already mentioned. <laughs> and then B, just, you know, the time in in technology, right? So bandwidth has improved. Uh, I think mm-hmm. there are more um, virtual meeting options, for instance. So, yes, I, I don't dispute the fact. Uh, but I think it's just another tool, right? So, right. you know, if... If you and I, you know, usually you're in New York and I'm in San Francisco here, mm-hmm. that does, we can have a, a great conversation as a way to, you know, figure out how that relationship, yes. you know, progresses. Yes. But for the size of, you know, a, a typical B2B deal, you're going to wind up face to face. So I think it's just another tool in the kit. People are busy right. on both sides. Right. And it doesn't always make sense to travel for every single conversation. Right. So for the outside salesperson, they're probably going to adopt this as a way to gain some of that um, more personal communication. They've been masters of the phone for eons, of <laughs> decades. Of course. So this just adds a little bit of the aspect of a face-to-face conversation when you can't be face-to-face. Right. So I think that the stat is true. Um, do I think it's... Uh, Doom for the outside seller? No. I think it's an extra kit for, you know, an extra tool in their sales bag for, for them to get sort of closer to that prospect and then travel when it when it makes sense. And then from an inside sales perspective, I think that um, 
I agree with you. I think that it's it's they're generally people that are junior in their career. Mm -hmm. um, they have a role in the marketing to sales process. Um, but I think that there's still challenges with do they report to sales? Do they report to marketing? Right. Who's who's in charge of the conversion? I mean that that right. and I don't know that there's a solution for that. Um, but adding adding some of that virtual that virtual the virtual meeting I think is really just primarily uh, where we are with technology and bandwidth and the ability to do that. People do FaceTime every day with their family, so why right. wouldn't they take that right. to right? Yeah, right. And it's true, and that's that's as well put as I've heard it. Um, I think it, it it can be used to advance the process, but somewhere in there, you've got to get in front of somebody yeah. you know and you've got to meet them because what happens is if you haven't met the person and what we've been talking a little bit about it is what are the skills right how are the skills different like I'm in front of you and I could see how you're reacting I could kind of see mm -hmm. your body language but if I'm on the phone yeah. uh, I don't know so I have to be able to listen properly and to me if, if you're going to say like this this trend is just going to go like to the majority virtual you, you need even more experienced salespeople absolutely that know how to you know, kind of hear well, can speak well, can speak with confidence on the phone because you're trying to, you and I have met in person, right? So yeah. that's, you know, we established a relationship. I think I initially found you on Twitter and I yeah. was following your stuff and we, we had lunch and, you know, <laughs> so now it's easy. I can get on the phone or I can, but if I hadn't met you before and I'm trying to sell you something, I, I have to try and establish trust in, in 30 minutes perhaps. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, it seems like we're aligned in a, 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 along those lines. But um, so let's talk about one other um, topic here. We hear quite a bit about how marketing and sales need to be aligned. Yes. Right. Um, and that there's the alignment is one of the biggest issues. What does that mean as far as where you're coming from and, and how does marketing and sales get aligned? Oh, it's so funny. It's an age old debate, right? You know, who. Who, who's responsible for the revenue? You know, can, does sales even need marketing? Does, you know, do you, does marketing, I mean, if you're talking about sort of the demise of the sales force, so I guess it's, does marketing need sales? <laughs> sort of flip it on its head. But it's really sort of, you know, that full, you know, sales says to marketing, you, deli you delivered me X number of leads, but they're not the right one. They're not qualified. Then marketing says, well, you're not putting the work in to, you know, close the deal effectively. I think ultimately it really comes down to collaboration versus um, versus finger pointing. And so if your marketing and sales leadership can align on what success looks like and have a pretty active dialogue, that's sort of point number one. And it's interesting. So you'll hear, you know, kind of um, the conversation and the points that I keep going back to. Yes, technology marketing or technology um, is advancing and changing the way that we work but it's actually focusing a lot more on our human strengths and elements. And so the collaboration in that, that goal setting and aligning around, you know, how is this going to work? Let's test and iterate together between sales mm -hmm. and marketing versus having it sort of tossing leads over the wall right. Right. is critical. And so I think that, you know, you kind of, you start there and then you track as, as much as possible in terms of, um, where you're sourcing those those leads, et cetera. And then you mm -hmm. leverage things like um, 
like Proofy Analytics, to be mm -hmm. able to show business impact of marketing spend. Mm -hmm. And I think, so back to, again, I think to the human element, part of the challenge between aligning sales and marketing is that they're talking two different languages and their KPIs sometimes are slightly different. So, you know, sales looks at marketing and says, okay, you guys are creative advertising people and we're talking about engagement and social and all of these things. And they're talking about bottom line numbers, like, you know, what's the revenue and, you know, right. these types of things. So aligning around vocabulary is a huge way to start to create effective collaboration in terms of, you know, engagement and, you know, social media and all of those different marketing buzzwords, translating the why into revenue lift. This is why we're doing it. This is the impact and starting to be able to talk about um, those tactics in the context of specific hard business results and show time to impact in terms of we ran this PR campaign, it's going to take three months to create, you know, to create the buzz and you'll start to see that in, in sales and, you know, in three months or mm -hmm, we've mm -hmm. defined that, okay, it's a 12 month sales cycle. So we're going to do this, this, you know, event, but this is going to start to impact conversations that are already in progress to expedite that close rate, whatever that might be, it becomes defining. Uh, and starting to talk the same language so that you can actually collaborate. Because I, I really do think that a lot of the misalignment has become from miscommunication. Or either speaking, thinking that you're speaking the same thing by using the same words but meaning different things. Or just not using the same language and so not being able to align around the, those true business drivers. So the CEO is, is going to, is, is the guy who needs to kind of pull this together, who needs to be, um, you know, a contemporary CEO that understands both sales and marketing, or who's going to, who's going to fix the problem if it's not aligned? Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately it is the CEO's responsibility to do that, right? That's their job description. But I don't think that, that sales and marketing needs to wait for, for that if, you know, they can right. sort of take the initiative right. and, and come together. He could be the, he or she could be the final arbiter if yeah. there's a, a deadlock. Absolutely. This was great. Um, one last question. Um, the role of the CMO today, mm -hmm. um, describe what's required. <laughs> um, in, in, you know, uh, we could do a whole episode on that yeah. probably. And then the second part of that is why is there the tenure still relatively short? that the CMO is whatever it is, it's, I don't know what the latest is, 42 months or whatever it is, of the entire C-suite, the CMO has the shortest tenure. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Comes back to the alignment and miscommunication mm -hmm. on goals. And I think it's also um, a lack of understanding of time to impact. So, you right. know, just say, so a new CMO comes into office, they're, they should, you know, they're doing listening, understanding how the organization works, what are the, what's working, what's not working, getting to know their peers, how the whole business mm -hmm. flow is. And so say, say they've got a 90 day plan. So listen, you know, act, build out their plan and start executing. So that's three months. Mm -hmm. And then, so they start say implementing new campaigns on that, on that 90 day and things take say six months to get into market and then who knows what the sales cycle is. Is the sales mm -hmm. cycle 12 months? Depends on your ticket right. size. Right. So, you know, you've got this window of how long it actually takes and that's difficult to 
define has been traditionally difficult to define companies mm-hmm. you know proof is is starting to um, to help you know close that gap so you have that insight but how do you prove that your actual value to the organization when it takes that long to ramp and impact a change right so and then you know you've got the discussions of uh, budget and it's like mm-hmm. okay well things aren't working so we're gonna cut your budget <laughs> you know you're taking the, the right, rug out from it. yeah so it just yeah. becomes a uh, a little yeah. bit uh, challenging, and then back to that communication or miscommunication around right. um, objectives and business results. And so, yeah, I think that's uh, that's a big one. And then, as far as the skill set for the the modern day CMO, what would be the top you know three? Top three. Oh goodness. Um, hmm. You have to have, I mean, I think this has always been true, but it's just becoming more and more true around business acumen. And this mm-hmm. goes into everything around, again, being able to speak the same same language, um, being able to demonstrate, you know, what your KPIs are. Here's another one, just kind of back to that last point. KPIs yeah. need to shift. If you, right. because of customer engagement has shift. Right. So if you need to change your strategy, you're not measuring on the same KPIs because that milestone is completely different. So that's right. another challenge for, for marketers. But right. being able to communicate that effectively to the C-suite in a, that business acumen with language that is then understood um, is, is critically important. Second item is just being customer-centric. You have to be customer-centric. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a mobile computer in their pocket, smartphone, right. and they can just completely dismiss you with a flick of their finger right. as, a, as a company. Right. So that understanding of the, co- of the customer, they have infinite choice and they have right. infinite information right. in terms right. of educating that choice. So if you are not surprising and delighting them and wounding that loyalty, your customers, whether it be B2B, B2C, B2B2C, exactly. um, then they're just going to dismiss you. And Right. Too many choices. It's yeah. too cluttered. Absolutely. Um, people are too busy and overwhelmed. And then thirdly, so you've got business sort of acumen, customer centricity, and then mm-hmm. some understanding of the tools of the trade, which is right. five thousand this year, according to Martin. It's Martech. crazy that, that yeah. Lumisphere thing that they put out there, which you can can't even read yes. with all the different providers. It's, it's incredibly overwhelming. It is. But well, <laughs> what can you do? Anyway, this has been great. Really, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Wish you nothing but the best here. It's going to be an exciting venture for you. And uh, hopefully you can come back on the program at some point in the future. Thanks, Dan. Michelle Killebrew, thank you.